Our speaker for the evening is uh, Therese Corey, who's the John and Jean Osterley Associate Professor of Thomistic Studies in the Philosophy Department at the University of Notre Dame. Um, she works on medieval theories of mind and cognition um, with a special focus on the thought of Thomas Aquinas and his 13th century interlocutors. Um, she also has a, a research interest in the history of Islamic philosophers and how they kind of shape uh, medieval scholastic thought and help introduce Aristotle um, into um, me medieval Europe. Um, we had her talk on that last time, which was a super interesting and fascinating talk, which should still be available on our podcast. So if, if you enjoy this evening's talk and you're curious about how uh, Aristotle kind of makes his way uh, into Europe in the 12th century, um, by all means, um, go take a look, uh, or in the 13th century, I should say, go, by all means, um, go and, and take a look at that, or take a listen at that, I should say, um, not to mix my metaphors. Um, tonight, we're going to ask her to talk um, on uh, Thomas Aquinas and a contemporary topic, um, that of uh, structural forms of injustice, especially racism, and whether there's anything in the thought of Aquinas that can help us give uh, an account of this phenomenon or, or, or help maybe, maybe clarify it and frame it in ways that are different from how it's commonly framed. Um, so I, I have read a couple of articles of hers on this that I, I found very thought-provoking. So I'm delighted that she's here um, this evening um, to join us. So thank you so much, uh, Therese, for coming. As usual, we'll have um, uh, uh, Professor Corey speak for uh, 30 to 40 minutes. Um, we'll then take um, questions for the remainder of our time at nine o'clock. I'll, I'll offer a formal word of thanks, um, but we can continue going a, a little bit after um, uh, if she's up for it and if we have folks who, who stick around with a couple more questions. Um, so thank you so much, Therese, for joining us and uh, welcome again. Well, thank you so much, Nathaniel, and to the Morningside Institute for this invitation. Um, I really enjoyed the discussions we had last time, and I'm very happy to be back. Um, and as I was mentioning just now, this is the first time that I'm giving any kind of talk since um, August. Um, so because of these various health issues, one of the things I was not able to do tonight was provide a glitzy slide presentation, which I would have absolutely loved to do. But Time did not permit that. Um, so I'm just going to talk, and I hope that the sight of me talking is for 30 to 40 minutes is not going to be excessively boring. Um, so, okay, so those of us who work on the medieval philosopher and theologian Thomas Aquinas love to point out his cameo appearance in one of the most important pieces of civil rights writing of the 20th century, Martin Luther King Jr.'s letter from a Birmingham jail. So King famously wrote, quote, an unjust law is a code that is out of harmony with the moral law. To put it in the terms of St. Thomas Aquinas, and here to mystic scholars everywhere give a cheer, an unjust law is a human law that is not rooted in eternal and natural law, end quote. Here, King appeals to Aquinas' view that human laws are responsible to a higher standard, the natural moral law available to all human beings through the use of reason. So recently, I've been thinking about some additional ways in which Aquinas' ethics, his natural law theory, might help us think about the difficult questions about racism that we face today. And this has turned out to be quite an interesting challenge. So for one thing, of course, Aquinas predates by about 300 years the very concept of race itself. So we can't just 
flip to some part of Aquinas's work where he talks about racism and find out what he says. Instead, we have to build up a theory based on the materials in his writings and especially his in discussions of injustice. But secondly, and even more challenging, and this is exciting for somebody working in this area, it might look as though Aquinas cannot possibly have anything to say about one of the most debated topics in this arena, which is structural racism. So let me give you a, a quick definition, and I'm going to provide more detail and examples later. But just as a working definition, structural racism is a defect within an institutional or social arrangement according to which that arrangement functions in such a way as to place certain racial groups at a disadvantage without anyone deliberately steering the results towards that disadvantage. So structural racism might afflict, for instance, systems of banking and lending, the criminal justice system, structures for promoting employees within a corporation, the distribution of good versus failing schools in different neighborhoods, etc. And in a case of structural racism, it's the, the system as it functions that tends to treat some group unjustly, even if none of the individual persons involved is explicitly acting on racially motivated hatred. Now, and this is what's interesting and challenging, it might seem that structural racism is a million miles away from Aquinas's ethics. We're doing right and wrong is a matter of what you as an individual person commit yourself to with your acts of will. So it's very easy to see how in Aquinas's ethics, acts motivated by racial hatred are prohibited, such as enslaving someone, beating them up, depriving them of full participation in society, shorting them on their wages, and so forth. Because all of these acts are acts of an individual that involve setting one's own will against the good of another human being. So, for instance, imagine that Jane is selling her beloved grandmother's house and receives a good offer from a Kenyan immigrant family. But she can't bear the thought of a Black family living in her dear dead grandmother's house, so she accepts a lower offer instead from a white family. Here, the, the situation is easy to parse on Aquinas's, um, using Aquinas's ethics. The injustice originates in Jane's acts of will, which are turned against the good of certain human beings, despising them and choosing to treat them unjustly. But structural racism, on the theory, can cause injustices without any individual willing to do so. So it might look as though Aquinas's ethics are going to be of no help here. How can there be an injustice where no one willed it? And in fact, when I talk to people about this, skeptics commonly object that structural racism is simply absurd within the framework of a traditional will-based ethics like Aquinas. And so the argument might go something like this. Racism is a term of moral judgment. Moral judgment applies to individual acts of the will. A banking system doesn't have acts of the will, so it's absurd to call a banking system racist. Now, I think this is based on a series of misunderstandings of uh, Aquinas' ethics, and my goal tonight is to argue the opposite. The idea of structural injustices is not at all foreign to Aquinas' ethics. In fact, Aquinas' theory of injustice actually helps us to understand what structural racism is and why it is morally urgent. And I hope these ideas can be helpful both to those who are skeptical about the idea of structural racism, as well as to those who already embrace this idea but are interested in how it might align with classical ethics. 
It's certainly not a notion that comes out of classical ethics in any kind of obvious way. So three sections to the talk. First of all, I want to start with some background or framework, how Aquinas understands evil and injustice generally. This is probably familiar material to many of you. Secondly, I explain how structural racism can be understood within that framework. And then the third section, developing some of my previous work in more detail, I lay out some insights from Aquinas that can help us draw nuanced distinctions between structural racism and other kinds of look-alike scenarios. Okay, so first off, let's begin by getting a general picture of where racism fits into Aquinas' ethics generally. Racism is a kind of injustice, injustice is a kind of evil. So first port of call, what is evil in Aquinas' philosophy? Aquinas uses the term evil, and that's malum in Latin, in its most general sense to refer to any defect in a thing that deprives it of what, quote, what it ought to have for its perfection, end quote. Each thing naturally tends toward its perfection, and when it lacks that perfection, it suffers a defect, which is to say, an evil. So here's an example. Blindness is an evil, a defect, for an owl's eye, depriving the eye of the good of sight. Similarly, holes in the roof are an evil, a defect, for my house, preventing my house from doing a good job of sheltering. I do not have holes in my roof, just in case anyone's worried about that. Evil is that we used to have holes in our roof, and the water came through in the most vicious fashion, but thankfully, this is no longer the case. So evil is the we, we think of evil as something sort of particularly malevolent, but evil in Aquinas's um, metaphysics is just the deprivation of any good that perfects a thing's nature. Now, as rational creatures, we humans have free will, and so our willing is liable to a special kind of defect, moral evil. So imagine that I decide to steal a laptop that's left unattended in the library, I do so by my act of will, committing myself to this action. And in so willing, I'm turning away from the human good of living together peacefully, which requires respecting others' property. So my willing to steal is a defective willing. And that defect is what Aquinas calls moral evils. They've got moral evils on the one side, and then we can call non-moral evils evil for a nature. Okay. Now let's get a quick picture of Aquinas' account of justice and injustice as a kind of evil. So Aquinas defines justice as giving each person their due and injustice as giving someone more or less than their due. Just and unjust giving, and this is the, in Latin, this is redere or tribure, can occur in two arenas either in private exchanges between individuals or in the community's action of distributing common goods or punishments to its members. And we'll come back to that point later. Injustices, of course, can occur for many different reasons, but one possible reason, and the one that concerns us here, is injustice due to the recipient's group membership. So group membership might earn someone unjust disadvantages, so aristocrats were preferentially guillotined during the French Revolution. 
or unjust advantages, as when the Borgia popes preferred to promote their nephews to cardinals. Injustice in virtue of group membership has, of course, occurred throughout human history in as many ways as there are dividing humans into groups. And injustice due to racial identity is one of these ways. Within this framework, now we have a sort of place to situate racism generally in Aquinas' um, theory of evil. It's a certain kind of injustice in which someone receives more or less than she is due on account of her racial identity, either from a private individual or in the distribution of common goods from the community. All right, so that's our, that's our starting point. So section two on structural racism. With all of this in mind, we can now turn to the case of structural racism. And I wanna illustrate this using the famous historical case of redlining, which is probably um, already familiar to many of you. So during the 1930s, the Federal Housing Administration developed mortgage financing programs to encourage home buying. Neighborhoods with mainly black residents, however, were excluded, literally marked in red or redlined. You can look up these, um, these historical maps. And the rationale was that white homeowners didn't want black neighbors. So mortgages for homes near black neighbors were rated high risk. And now unsurprisingly, this set of regulations and economic incentives and market practices functioned like a little machine that churned out predictable and dramatic disadvantages for black home buyers and black neighborhoods. At this time, homes in or near black neighborhoods dropped in value. Their purchasers were shut out of subsidies resulting in diminished purchasing power and home equity. And black home buyers who are living in these neighborhoods could not escape redlined neighborhoods simply by moving away, because this was also the area when white neighborhoods like my own here in South Bend, which was built in the 1920s, were requiring buyers to sign covenants, promising not to resell to non-white buyers to protect neighboring home values. So the crucial point for us here from this little historical tidbit is that once the social arrangements for transferring property become structured in this way, they have the effect of depriving black home buyers of their due, whether or not this or that individual loan officer, real estate agent or homeowner is acting from hateful intentions. These individuals are acting in a context of regulations and customs and practices that channel the effects of their actions in certain directions, like a canal channeling water. So in other words, the effects of a social structure can become unglued from the intentions of the people that carry out various roles within those structures. The structure itself, in its ordinary functioning, deprives certain members of society of their due, and when the burden of these out outcomes falls disproportionately on certain racial groups, that's precisely structural racism. Now for two important clarifications. First of all, when structural racism is traceable to intentionally hateful choices, it can nonetheless persist even after those causes are removed because damaged social structures tend to become self-sustaining. So for instance, redlining was outlawed in the late 1960s, but this injustice continues to be preserved in a kind of feedback loop. 
redlining was an important factor in the impoverishing of neighborhoods. The impoverishing generates its own set of self-reinforcing spillover effects, including greater obstacles to participating in the housing market, more poverty, and the cycle continues. And it's interesting if you look at the redlining map from Detroit so from the 1930s, and then the poverty map in Detroit, for, for Detroit, which is dates to about 2016, so 50 years after the end of redlining, you can actually see the boundaries of the, the uh, where, where poverty is located in Detroit, the boundaries correspond, in fact, to the redlining boundaries from the 1930s. Um, so today, Black homeowners disproportionately live in previously redlined neighborhoods. Black homeownership rates are dramatically lower than any other group. Their home values are on average lower and appreciate more slowly. Mortgage applications are more often rejected. Black Americans are disproportionately affected by hazards related to substandard housing, including lead poisoning, hazardous materials, contaminated water, and higher rates of death in home fires. Despite reforms, it looks like the housing system continues to deprive certain groups of their due. There's some interesting distinctions we can come back to there in the Q&A. Um, the second key point here is that it's also important to clarify that structural racism doesn't need to originate in intentionally hateful choices. And my favorite example for, for this sort of situation is the medical device called a pulse oximeter. Um, which estimates your blood oxygen levels by shining light through your finger. And you can tell when you should go to the emergency. If your blood oxygen hits 88%, that's considered dangerously low. Um, but the problem is that since the device works by shining light through your finger, the skin, your skin pigment affects how the light shines, and it causes the device to overestimate blood oxygen levels to higher degree the darker your skin is. Now, obviously, no one imagines that the inventors of the pulse oximeter deliberately calibrated it to put darker skinned patients at greater medical risk. But that is the effect. So this is an example of a set of medical practices and devices that carry structural racism. You can see how this could be remedied by simply changing the um, protocols for what percentages of um, what readouts from the instrument um, are construed as indicating dangerously low blood oxygen levels. Okay, so now we can come back to Aquinas with those illustrations on the table. And I want to suggest that this idea of structural racism is actually perfectly intelligible within Aquinas's ethical system. How does that work? So in order to isolate the structural component, let's assume that nobody in the system is intending to deprive anyone of their due. So we can set aside attention, intention for the purposes of thinking about this. Um, that means we're setting aside defects in a, of a human will, moral evils. So what we're left with is the other kind of evil, evil for a nature. Structural racism, I would argue, is that kind of evil. But what kind of nature? It's a defect of what exactly? And I want to suggest that within Aquinas's metaphysics, structural racism is a defect or evil of a human artifact, and specifically a social artifact. Now, when we think about artifacts, we first of all think about products like 
chairs and tables. But we have to realize that there are also social artifacts. And this is very important for Aquinas because human beings are creatures of creativity and art. And one of the things that we create is our social environment. And it's natural for us to do that. So cities, schools, laws, procedures, practices, and customs are all social artifacts that we humans are continuously building up generation after generation out of creativity and rationality. And for Aquinas, it specifically belongs to human nature to construct such artifacts because we're social beings. We flourish only together in community. So because of my social nature, I flourish only as part of a flourishing community and a flourishing community needs structure. And this is also something distinctive about Aquinas. He is very insistent that um, it's not the case that it's the fallen nature of human beings that requires structure and law and practices um, that are organized and arranged with authorities and various things like that. He thinks it's just being rational beings who are living together in community, we need this. So we, a society has to have rulers, education, systems for trade and peacekeeping, and all of that has to be organized through laws and customs. So it's obviously not at all crazy, given Aquinas' understanding of society, to think that a society can have structural defects. Just as anything that human beings make can be defective in various ways, so too are social artifacts. And that means that systems, institutions, and customs can be evil. That is, defective, failing to accomplish what they ought. So now we might ask, well, hold on here. Can a social structure be not just defective, but specifically unjust? Or is that a kind of category mistake since it's really individual persons and their acts of willing that are unjust? And that's the objection to the idea of structural racism that I mentioned at the beginning of the talk. And actually it's based on two assumptions. First, that an injustice has to be intentional. And second, that impersonal structures cannot do injustices. Now, these two assumptions, interestingly enough, are not reflected in Aquinas' theory of justice. So regarding the first, Aquinas insists that a just action must be measured in terms of whether it successfully fulfills the goal at which it aims, which is the rendering of what is due. This rendering of what is due is a measurable effect outside the agent. Therefore, an injustice is done whenever the action of rendering goods fails to achieve that effect, even if the failure, the injustice, is unintended. So here's an example. Suppose that Julie owes Shauna $100, but she accidentally leaves off a zero when she sends Shauna the payment. So Shauna receives only $10, a tenth of what she was owed. Now this is an injustice. Since Julie did not intend the injustice, she is not personally guilty of injustice as a defect of will. That's what Aquinas would call formal injustice. Nonetheless, Julie fails to give Shauna her due. And this unintentional, injust unintentional injustice is what Aquinas calls a material injustice. So we can see that Aquinas' notion of injustice is broad enough to, uh, to encompass 
any case in which someone receives what is not due to them or does not receive what is due to them, whether that happens intentionally or unintentionally, and he says that this is something unique to justice. It doesn't, it's, this is not the case with other virtues, which are measured solely by the status of the will, but precisely because justice is a giving to, uh, according to a measure that's external to the agent, we can evaluate whether that action has been successful, just, or unsuccessful, unjust, apart from the agent's will, and then you have a material injustice. Um, so this clarification helps us also see why Aquinas would also reject the second assumption, namely that impersonal structures cannot do injustices. For Aquinas, justices not only concern private transactions among individual members of society, but also the community's distribution of common goods to its members. So those are common goods like honors, knowledge, wealth, property, safety, mobility, etc. And the community carries out this distribution of common goods precisely through a variety of social structures and institutions, the social artifacts that we just talked about, which each society develops in its own way to function well. For example, highway infrastructure and traffic laws are part of the structure whereby the community distributes the good of mobility. Private and public schools, school boards, teacher training programs, educational mandates are all part of the structure whereby a particular community distributes the good of education and so forth. So when these structures are functioning well, distributing common goods to each member according to his or her due, the community is in a good condition. And the community's good condition or flourishing is what the common good is at its most general level. So a defect or evil in a social structure is a defect or evil of the community, which holds the community back from attaining the good of its nature. And it's interesting to point out here that this is exactly what Martin Luther King Jr. had pointed out in his reference to Aquinas on just law. A law that is not ordered properly to the common good in conformity with the natural law is unjust. So laws, of course, are a certain kind of social structure. So if we agree that laws can be unjust, we've already allowed for the possibility of structural injustice. Of course, these structures for distributing common goods are always implemented by individual human beings. Nonetheless, as we saw above, goods can be distributed unjustly in a material injustice, even without any intention to do so, formal injustice. So we can see how within Aquinas's conception of social flourishing, a social structure can be not just defective, but unjust by distributing common goods to the members of society without appropriately achieving what is due to each. And this is true even if none of the individuals involved harbor any intention to act unjustly. Okay. So now let's apply this to racial injustice. Since racism is a kind of injustice, we can similarly distinguish between racism as formal injustice, in which someone intends to deprive members of a, of a group of their due, versus racism as material injustice, in which members of some group are deprived of their due, even without anyone intending that result. So now we have a kind of Thomistic definition of structural racism, which goes like this. Structural racism is an evil or defect in a social structure for distributing common goods, such that the structure in functioning 
produces material injustices in which some individuals do not receive their due in virtue of their racial group membership. So the idea that racism can be structural is not at all alien to Aquinas's thinking. All right. Now for section three, and this is objections and clarifications. In this last section, I wanna go a little bit further and explore some insights from Aquinas that might help us get a more nuanced picture. And in particular, I wanna consider an objection that I frequently encounter in discussing this material. This objection starts with wondering how we can distinguish genuine cases of structural racism from other cases that don't involve racism and ends by suggesting that maybe there's no such thing as structural racism because all cases can be explained by other causes. So here's an example of this kind of objection. In a recent book, Ed Fazer criticizes the notion of structural racism because he says the only evidence cited for structural racism is racial disparities in the population. So disparities like the fact that black students are less likely to go on to PhD stu studies than white students, or that black children are more likely to be exposed to toxic contaminants in their neighborhood than white children. And in reality, he argues disparities result from all sorts of different causes. For instance, chance, geographical location, cultural values, all of these can play a role in determining what job someone gets. And where the disparities involve social disadvantages, he argues, poverty and family breakdown provide better explanations of those disadvantages than structural racism. Now, this analysis has many problems that I don't want to go into here. However, Fazer is right that a disparity alone with no other information or context is not enough to demonstrate injustice. So here's a non-racial analogy. My parents had four children, three girls and a boy. One can't simply look at the numbers and conclude that since my parents did not have equal numbers of girls and boys that they were prejudiced against boys. That would be crazy. Of course, one can't rule out prejudice either. My parents are not listening to this, so this is fine. But the point is just that percentages on their own apart from any further information or context, aren't sufficient evidence of injustice or justice one way or the other. So then how do we distinguish cases of structural injustice and specifically of structural racism from innocent disparities? So I wanna make a series of proposals and I wanna draw on Aquinas' theory of justice for some useful distinctions. The thought is this, Crucially, for Aquinas, the measure of justice is not achieving numerical parity, but rather achieving what is due to each. And embedded in this very notion of what is due is the presence of human actions of distribution, where the community or one of its members is rendering something to someone or should be rendering something to someone. As a result, what is essential to injustice for Aquinas is improper distribution, not disparity, even if disparity sometimes can be a useful symptom. So we can expand this thought with three key ideas. First, 
we could distinguish three different ways that disparities might be related to justice. First of all, we could have just disparities in Aquinas's notion of justice. This occurs when different things are owed to different people and each person is getting their due. So the easy example with money is Julie owes Shauna $100, she owes Kevin $20, she's paying them different amounts, but she's repaying her debts in both cases, and each is getting their due. Here's a more challenging example. Sometimes there might be a disparity in what it takes, the effort and cost that it takes to give someone person their due versus other people. So when distributing emergency medical supplies after an earthquake, it will be more costly to helicopter the supplies into regions where the roads have been destroyed. But the supplies are just as much due to those injured citizens as to injured citizens living in more accessible areas. So that's it. those are examples of just disparities. Now we might have a second category, which are unjust disparities. And that happens when disparity is traceable to someone not getting their due. It's as easy enough. So by way of example, we could say, here's one school where children are getting a full school day's worth of edu education from qualified teachers. Across the city in a failing school, children in an understaffed um, classroom are getting only 50 minutes a day of instruction and spending the rest of the time watching educational videos. This is a real example. Third, we might have neutral disparities when the disparity falls outside the sphere of human distribution altogether. So for example, I have a nice oak tree growing in my backyard, but there is no oak tree growing in the neighbor's yard. That disparity is the work of squirrels, not of humans. And more importantly, the distribution of acorns does not fall within the purview of the common good, at least not here in 21st century South Bend, Indiana. A philosopher could always come up with an example of some society in which the distribution of acorns does fall within the purview of the common good, but it doesn't here. So we don't have to worry that the, that the community has abandoned its responsibility to the squirrels. The neighbor's lack of an oak tree doesn't imply any failure on the part of the community in distributing common goods. Those are example, that's an example of a neutral disparity. Okay, so, so, so far we have these three categories, just disparities, unjust disparities, and neutral disparities. That's our first insight from Aquinas. And then the second important insight from Aquinas is this, that a just distribution requires that the goods be distributed according to the just cause. He says, according to the just cause. Now by cause, he means that there's always something in the recipient in virtue of which some good is due to them. In other words, the reason that a certain good is due to a certain person always lies in some feature um, aspect of the recipient that naturally corresponds to the relevant good and as it were calls forth the owing of that good. So this feature of the recipient is what Aquinas calls the just cause of distributing or we could say that in virtue of which someone is owed someone. So someone is owed something. So for here's some examples medical care is due to someone in virtue of his sickness. Public honor is due to a governor in virtue of her role of caring for the community. Aquinas himself gives the example of knowledge as the just cause for being promoted to professor. 
it would be unjust, he says, to make someone a professor, quote, because he is Peter or Martin, or because he is rich or a relative. And I gave this talk one time and somebody came up to me afterwards and said, but I'm a professor and my name is Martin. And I said, don't worry, Aquinas is not talking about you. Another way to think about this is that for Aquinas, every distribution connects some good with some recipient and the connection always has some cause. That cause is unjust when it does not naturally call forth the corresponding good. So for instance, being rich or a relative should never be the cause of linking up a professorship with an applicant. It does that, that fact that I am rich or a relative does not naturally call forth a professorship. You could think of it that way. For Aquinas, distributing according to an unjust cause immediately taints the distribution. In fact, he even calls it a special sin, the regard of persons, which occurs when we allow some feature of a recipient to cause a distribution, which does not in fact bear the right relationship to the good in question. So here we can already see an implication for structural injustice. Suppose that the way the banking system is set up is that it allows bank employees to arrange for friends and relatives, even if they are not financially qualified. Suddenly, an unjust cause has intruded upon the distribution of loans. What links some borrowers to a loan is not financial qualification, but simply being the branch manager's sister. To the extent to which the banking system is responsive, sensitive to this unjust cause, it will churn out material injustices in which some recipients get loans that are not due to them. So in short, a distribution cannot occur justly if the distribution is responsive to the wrong sort of cause. So for example, we might ask ourselves um, in evaluating the justice of promotions, well, what is promotion at this company responsive to? Is it responsive to expertise, demonstrated talent, or kissing up to the boss? Okay, so here we can pause to evaluate. Because at this point, we have the tools that we need to distinguish structural injustices from other kinds of lookalike cases. For Aquinas, the questions to ask are twofold. First of all, are common goods being distributed? Secondly, if so, is the distribution responsive to the wrong sort of causes? And when we ask these questions, then we can get a further set of distinctions among different things that are merely disparities and things that are justice or injustice. So here's one type of case, which would be innocent disparities. These innocent disparities occur when the disparity is not harmful and is not caused by systems distributing common goods. So here's an example, an unusual number of my female rel relatives are musicians. And that seems to be ex explicable in terms of family arrangements that emanate from my maternal grandmother's passion for music. Um, that's not traceable to a system that distributes common goods and the disparity, some families have more musicians than others, is not harmful to anyone. Secondly, harmful disparities occur where the disparity is harmful, but also not caused by systems distributing common goods. So for example, the roads to a village might be rendered impassable by an earthquake. Inhabitants of that village are deprived of water, food, and emergency medical care, which are readily available to other local villages. Now, 
the cause of the disparity is the earthquake, not some system for distributing common goods. Nonetheless, in a Aquinas' picture of justice, we would have to follow up and say, if those goods are common goods, and the community leaves this harmful disparity unaddressed, it becomes an injustice. So just because a harmful disparity is caused by an innocent cause doesn't mean that there isn't an injustice that results if the community doesn't fail to redress, doesn't act to redress the injustice. But that's a separate issue. Third, structural justice occurs where systems correctly distribute to each what is due in accord with the appropriate cause. And it's worth noting that this might result in parity or disparity depending on the circumstances. And an example of how this is compatible with disparity is the fact that school systems justly put more effort and expense into educating students with disabilities. Fourth, structural injustice, occur structural injustice then is going to occur where a system distributes according to the appropriate cause, but not in the right amount or distributes according to the wrong cause. And here we come back to race again, except in certain medical scenarios, the race of the recipient is never the right cause of distribution. So apart from those limited medical cases, structures that distribute goods in a way that is responsive to the race of the recipient are unjust. And those are examples of structural racism. Okay, um, last point, so I'm almost done here. Um, but we haven't completely answered the original objection. And the remainder of the objection goes like this. Now look here, how many structures truly distribute according to race? Rather, what they're really distributing is according to poverty, a lack of family stability or poor education or something. So this black child is subjected to a failing school, not because she is black, but because she lives in a poverty stricken neighborhood so forth. To respond to that, I want to borrow a third idea from Aquinas, and this time from his metaphysics, namely the distinction between proximate and remote causes. So causes are never isolated in Aquinas' metaphysics. Changes in the present depend on chains of causes that stretch back into history. Your nearest cause is the proximate cause, and we could call earlier causes remote causes. So my suggestion is this, in identifying cases of structural injustice, it's not enough to identify merely the proximate cause of distribution. We also have to look into more remote causes. And we can see this easily enough in a non-racial case, like the earthquake case. So if we turn to the case and we notice the road to the village is destroyed by a totally innocent proximate cause, an earthquake. But then we, suppose we ask, why was this road destroyed and others were not destroyed? And suppose the answer is that the roads in this area have never been properly maintained because this area is known to be a voting stronghold against the country's longstanding dictator. And for the last 30 years, he has made sure that no public money flows into infrastructure in this region. So now we can see that in that scenario, the road's vulnerability to earthquakes is itself actually the result of an unjust distribution of common goods. The destruction of the road then is not just a natural disaster, proximate cause is a natural disaster, but it is also an injustice because it depends on a prior, more remote distribution according to an unjust cause. 
And I want to suggest something parallel for cases of structural racism. Perhaps when failing schools are overwhelmingly located in Black neighborhoods, the proximate cause of the distribution is poverty. And it's worth pointing out that for Aquinas in a democracy, poverty cannot be a just cause for subpar education. So if education is being, subpar education is being distributed in a way that is responsive to poverty, that's already structurally unjust, but we can set that aside. But then we can add, why ask, why is the poverty rate of black Americans double that of white Americans? And with enough historical context, it becomes clear that there's not merely an accidental connection there. In the not so distant past, goods like housing, job opportunities, and social mobility were in fact explicitly distributed in according with race as their proximate cause, thereby creating the link between poverty and race in the first place. So even if poverty is the proximate cause for distributing subpar education today, race remains a remote cause in that distribution. So racial disparities in education are not accidental or innocent, they can be explained by a chain of causes of distribution, which includes race. But if race has any causal role at any level in determining who gets what kind of education, it does so unjustly. The unjust intervention of race in distributing goods, even as a remote cause, makes the distribution defective. And that defect is precisely within the Thomistic framework of justice, what can be called structural racism. And I'll stop there. Thank you very much. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Therese. That gives us much to think about. And I especially appreciated your um, your note of proximate and remote causes at the end there, because that that kind of finally tied together something I'd been thinking about and tracking along the way and sort of wondering about and how is this going to fit in? And then there it was. I've, I've um, yeah, I've been trying to figure this out. And yeah. Yeah. So I really, I really, I really appreciate it.